The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Lenore Arab. She's a professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA and a nutritional epidemiologist with 30 years' experience in the study of diet and disease spanning two continents. She has numerous professional affiliations, including being a former member of the National Academy of Science Food Nutrition Board Subcommittee on the Uses and Interpretation of Dietary Reference Intakes. She served on the World Health Organization's Expert Panel on Nutrition, and she has published over 170 papers, as well as numerous book chapters and monographs. She was a nutrition advisor to the World Health Organization for 10 years and founding director of the World Health Organization's Collaborating Center for Nutritional Epidemiology in Berlin. Welcome, Dr. Arab. Thank you, Melinda. I discovered you because we are both going to be at a conference in Long Beach, California, that specifically looks at tea. But your research interests focus on tea, coffee, and beyond, looking at anti-carcinogens in foods and how we can treat diet. Of course, this is one of my loves as a dietitian, is how to prevent and treat illness And so you look specifically at diet and cancer progression and how to not only prevent cancer, but also to help it from progressing on. So let me ask you, what is nutritional epidemiology and how did you find a passion in this work? Ah, I'm glad you asked because I'm hoping amongst your audience there may be others who find a passion in this work. Epidemiologists usually only discover there is such a profession later in their career. Epidemiology is the way that we can discover disease causation by looking at patterns in human populations. We look at people the way they live, the way they are active in their world, the way they eat to discover, for example, why one woman develops breast cancer and another woman from her same community, her same age, her same profile does not. It's looking at the subtle patterns in the context of the real world and not in some artificial laboratory situation. I call it epi where the rubber hits the road because if we see something in an epidemiologic study, despite all of the noise that's out there, it is likely to be very important. Mm-hmm. And so how did you discover it? It's not like you were a little girl and somebody said, what do you want to do when you grow up? And you said, oh, nutritional epidemiology. Oh, gosh. Well, that's an interesting story. I actually intended to go to medical school, and I became uh, acutely aware of the fact that as a physician, there are only so many lives you can touch, and only part of that time can you really be successful in saving them. Whereas if you go into prevention, you may not be able to count the bodies, but you can impact the quality of life and the duration of life in a much more powerful way. So I moved from medicine to public health preventive medicine, studied epidemiology, and then wanted to have a science base, and that was founded in nutrition because I was fascinated by the the importance and the complexity of how our diets are amongst the biggest environmental impacts in our lives. 
Mm-hmm. I agree. It's fascinating. And I think one of the issues that always comes up with epidemiological studies, at least when I have discussions with people, is that they say, well, there, there is so much of that noise. There is so much clutter, so many variables, or, or people will move around. So it's harder to really connect the dots between where someone lives and the diseases that they may develop. This is true. It is really saying why it's important to have extremely well-designed studies that control for covariates that might be in the causal pathway, but also to control for potential biases in these studies. Why do we depend on them? It's really the only way we can tease out the importance of specific parts of our diet because we cannot put people on a diet versus a placebo for 30 years and see who has less cancer than someone else. It just doesn't work that way with people. When we do it with other animal models, they don't have the same systems we do. They don't have the same diet. They don't have the same environments that we do. And so it just isn't really transferable. Mm -hmm. Now, I know you're going to be talking about tea specifically at the conference coming up, but I want to try to broaden our conversation and say with the new dietary guidelines just came out with their 2015 recommendations. And the thing that seems to percolate to the top always is a recommendation to eat more fruits and vegetables. Largely, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that there are many things going for fruits and vegetables. They're high in fiber, they're high in antioxidant nutrients, they're high in these compounds, the phenols, that seem to protect against inflammation and a whole host of things that can go wrong with, within a cell. So tell me a little bit about antioxidants and where you think these recommendations come from to eat more fruits and vegetables. Okay, and thank you for asking that because I came into the tea interest area sort of backwards. I started conducting epidemiologic studies across Europe of both men at high risk of heart disease and women who had developed breast cancer, looking at what in their diet might explain those women that don't get the disease and those men that don't get the disease. And what we actually used then as biomarkers of their diet were little bits of their fat. You know, if we take some a little bit of someone's fat from their buttocks, we can tell what kind of carotenoid profile they have, which directly comes from the fruits and vegetables that they have eaten. So that's where my research in this area started. And I started because I was as entranced by the potential of antioxidants than as anyone else was. It's a very sexy hypothesis. Unfortunately, What I have seen over 20 years of research and what I'll be talking about at the tea conference is it is highly likely that the things we are calling antioxidants in foods have no impact as antioxidants at all. The amounts we are getting are so small, the absorption is so low, and it doesn't mean that these products aren't active. They are, many of them, active in other mechanisms, enhancing gene function or shutting down, promoting or shutting down other physiological activities, but not as antioxidants. So now having said that, there are two very important antioxidants to all of us. These are vitamin C and vitamin E. Vitamin C we will be getting in fruits if we get them at the farmer's market. We may get nothing from fruits that have been sitting in a supermarket shelf 
for the duration of time that is quite common there. And vitamin E, we usually get that in nuts and oils, but a lot of the manufacturing has taken the vitamin E out of the oil before it gets to us and packaged it so that it's used for other purposes. But other antioxidants, and we'll be talking about tea, such as tea antioxidants, are not proven to have any impact as antioxidants in man, so much so that the European Food Regulation Agency has forbidden labeling of foods as high in antioxidants because the human impact is simply not there. So how should we be talking about these compounds? You know, as many things, a rather complex story. Let me start with what I like to say. You know, in the dietary arena, it's as much what you're eating as what you're displacing. But having said that, fruits and vegetables, way beyond the items that you mentioned there, you know, their antioxidants, have the whole profile of micronutrients that are extremely important to us, water-soluble vitamins that we are not getting adequately in our diets, a very good balances of magnesium and potassium compared to the sodium we're getting from other sources. And then there are these magic ingredients. There are these things that we don't call nutrients because they aren't essential for life, but they are very helpful in life. Mm-hmm. Let me just say probably everyone has heard, you know, it's good to have a wide variety and have a lot of different colors of fruits and vegetables in their diet, and that goes back to the effectiveness of different carotenoids. But I would say, in general, in the American diet, we need more vegetables than we have been consuming, that the impact of vegetables on our health, on our diabetes risks, on our heart disease risks are underestimated. It's not just a certain number of fruits and vegetables. It's definitely increasing vegetables. And all vegetables are not created equal. For example, in my research career, I moved around the world and I lived in Germany for many years, 14 years. And when Germany was reunified, we saw that the cancer rates in East Germany were surprisingly lower for some cancers than they were in the West. And one of the factors that we discovered was associated with this was the consumption of cabbage, which is a cruciferous vegetable, just like broccoli is and cauliflower is and mustards are and horseradish is. And it seemed that this might actually be doing good. So we did some feeding experiments when I took a professorship at North Carolina, and we realized when we looked very closely at the system that there are components in cabbage that enhance certain enzymes because our body thinks that this is dangerous and toxic, these enzymes go up and the elevation of those enzymes through the cabbage effect has overall a very good effect, even though the reason our body does it is to get rid of the cabbage. So in that case, eating cruciferous vegetables more than Once a week is not really desirable, there is a range on how much is too much. On the other hand, there are certain vegetables that we would need to consume almost daily to get their positive benefit. And also, tea is one of these foods that our evidence suggests needs to be consumed not just daily, but multiple times a day to make sure 
that your blood supply has the active ingredients at the time when you're going to need it because Hmm. otherwise they're being excreted every eight hours. That's so interesting. Well, I have to jump back to cabbage for a moment. Did you find that the fermented cabbage, as in sauerkraut, is preferable in terms of cancer prevention to the fresh kind? No, actually, we used both fresh fermented and cooked cabbage. And what we saw is that ideally, cabbage close or cruciferous vegetables that were close to the raw form had the most active ingredients. However, people won't eat them because they're too bulky. They won't eat much of it. So we have this balance of trying to get amounts in that we want, but trying to break down the fiber enough so that the doses are tolerable. Hmm. So I'm going to then throw out what we had thought previously about this whole free radical scavenging idea with antioxidants. Is that correct? Okay, yeah. Is that, am I following the thinking right on how Oh, are you going to throw, throw, you're throwing it out? Yes. 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 I, I, uh, the, one of the major lessons at the World Tea Expo will be educating the um, audience there in the fact that tea is an extremely biologically active leaf, but its activity is not through an antioxidant impact. Okay, because that had been the theory for so long, is that that was how these quote-unquote antioxidants were working. That was the theory, and that was the theory partly because there, 40% of the dry weight of tea is antioxidants. It just, you know, seemed to make sense. However, these substances, these catechins and flavones in tea are extremely poorly absorbed. So that is really not the only active ingredient in tea, and the activity of those products, flavonoids, are very likely to be through other mechanisms. Okay. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we are speaking with Dr. Lenora Arab. She is at UCLA. She is an expert nutritional epidemiologist. She has 30 years experience studying diet and disease. And we are talking about the role of fruits, vegetables. We're going to launch into tea now because you will be speaking at the World Tea Expo. And your specific area that you're going to be covering there has to do with the cardiovascular benefits of tea, but we should also maybe talk about the anti-cancer role that tea plays too. Okay. What we do know from the cardiovascular benefits, we do know, you know, as we were just talking about, that there are components in tea that are antioxidants in the test tube, but in humans the absorption is too low, the levels are too low, they are rapidly excreted from the body. So there are other things going on there And we see their effect. We see their effect in the elasticity of the blood vessel. We see their effect in something that we published on, and that is a reduction in the risk of stroke. We um, did studies combining data across the world on approximately half a million people that were drinkers of green and black tea, and we saw that the dose of tea that they drank every day was linearly associated with their reduced stroke risk, so much so that drinking three cups a day had about a 21% impact, a 21% lower risk of stroke. 
So there are lots of ways in which we know T's are active. They do genetic signaling. They decrease inflammation. They affect our vascular cells. They increase nitric oxide. They affect platelet aggregation. There are many ways in which they can affect our cardiovascular disease risk. Antioxidants are not one of them. So that's one entire story, and the story is pretty clear. We do seem to have a readily accessible substance that is extremely safe, that has caffeine in it, but not in levels so high that you have to you know, warn people about it. It is the second most frequently consumed beverage in the world, the first being water. And it has other positive substances in it, such as fluoride, or there is an amino acid that's of great interest in tea called theanine, which is only in tea or mushrooms, goes directly to the brain, and seems to impact our brain waves in a positive manner, creating this wakeful readiness for task performance that is not just dependent on caffeine. So there are these brain and cardiovascular effects. Now, if we turn to cancer, it used to be that people thought that teas and coffees might actually increase cancer risk, and the first studies were to see if this, if there was harm, particularly through levels of high caffeine, and that did not play out at all. As a matter of fact, the way I became interested in tea was because my husband had advanced prostate cancer. And after doing research on nutritional epidemiology for many years, I saw studies on green tea in animal models that showed that it was protecting both the incidence and the progression of prostate cancer. And it seemed to be extremely powerful in that regard. So I decided to start looking at this in humans. What we do see, unfortunately, is that we cannot reproduce in people what is very obviously occurring in rodent models, and that's often the uh, you know the story that we see. But unfortunately, we don't have enough data on T and cancer to say that there is strong evidence of a protective effect across cancers. We have done research on rectal cancer and colorectal cancer in humans where we think there is a protective effect in an environment where people don't consume excessive amounts of alcohol. Hmm. And this we actually studied in Russia. Hmm. It's funny that you said where they don't consume excessive amounts of alcohol. I thought you were going to say where they don't consume excessive amounts of red meat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That would play um, in too, right? Red meat is an independent risk factor for colorectal cancer. That's absolutely true. And so when we have a protective substance, sometimes it can outperform damaging influences and maybe even more important if you have risk that you can have prevention. Sometimes in the presence of damaging substances, it it turns the other way. They either are too, their impact is too small or the impact can actually turn in the other direction. Mm-hmm. So that let me make that a little bit more clear, Melinda. There are foods that can protect you against the occurrence of cancer that are very effective in slowing down or blocking DNA damage in the cell, which is a direct cause of a cell going wild and developing many DNA breaks that results in cancer. 
And then once you already have a cancer, there are foods that can do one or two things. They can speed up the progression of the cancer or they can slow it down. And that's what most people don't realize. Beta carotene, for example, we thought it protected against cancer, but if someone already has an early level of disease, particularly lung cancer, we see that this fuels the fire. It fuels the flame. We see this with folic acid. Folic acid, which is in green leafy vegetables and is fortified in our food supply, appears to be undesirable for people that have cancer because it may actually be encouraging the tumor growth faster than it's encouraging our healthy cells growing. And in fact, the first drug that was effective in childhood leukemia was an antifolate. It blocked folic acid and starved the tumor. Mm -hmm. So what foods or food substances do you recommend in terms of slowing down a cancer once it's already been formed? Unfortunately, we have much less data on this, the survivor end of, of carcinogenesis, the development of tumors, the growth of tumors, the aggressiveness of tumors, than we do about the prevention of cancer. So I can only speak rather generally in that the one thing that really seems to be important is not over-consuming individual products, not taking high levels of supplements, not concentrating your food. We've, In almost all cases, supplements are much more active than what you would get through the food source itself and also, because of this, have a much greater toxicological risk. Mm-hmm. So we want people who have cancer to have a high-protein diet. We want them to maintain their muscle mass. We want them to be as physically active as they can. We want them to have enough of the other B vitamins to make sure that their, you know, their energy level is high, but we do not want high-dose herbalist-based supplement treatments because they have backfired. That's so interesting. Well, getting back to tea then, is tea one of those beverages that might be able to slow down cancer? And if so, has the research been, I know the animal models are stronger than the human ones, but what about the form of tea, green versus black, for example? Okay, so I will say that we don't, we don't have enough data for me to really talk about tea preventing aggressive cancers. But let's talk about the type of tea and what is tea and what isn't tea because, as you well know, there is a lot of confusion about that. And I was at the TED conference last week. At the breaks, people were asking me if I'd like to try this tea or that tea. And, you know, teas, the teas that I study, the teas that have been the beverage of choice for billions of people around the globe are teas that are based on leaves that come from one plant, Camellia sinensis. That is a single plant. If you pluck the leaves of that plant and you do nothing more to them, they will turn into black tea. The enzymes in the tea leaf themselves will actually oxidize the catechins and darken the product that you produce. If you heat treat the leaves right after they're plucked and dry them, then you kill the enzymes and the tea stays green. 
And if you do something in between that, you leave it for a little while and then stop it, you get these beautiful golden oolong teas. So that's pretty much the range of Camellia sinensis with one exception, and these are white teas. They're rather rare. They're rather expensive. They are made from the buds of the tea plant. They are not harvested as often. They're particularly rich in theanine, and because they're not widely consumed, we don't have epidemiologic evidence. We just have assumptions that based on the uh, composition of the plant, they should be particularly effective in brain-based effects of the tea. Mm -hmm. Well, we just have a couple of minutes, and I want to leave some time for you to pull out any salient points you want our listeners to go home with. Okay. Well, thank you for offering me that. In the context of tea, you know, what I would want people to realize is we need you know, high fluid intake. That's a given. We have problems with energy balance. We're even seeing studies that sweetened, artificially sweetened beverages might have a bad impact on our microbiome, which is the hottest topic in nutrition. Mm-hmm. I tell my medical students at UCLA that I bet you 30 years from now, you will not be choosing the foods by what you think tastes good. You'll be choosing the foods that you think your microbiome should be getting to have a microenvironment that is most healthful. So we know artificial sweeteners are not the way to go. We know that sweetened beverages are not the way to go. Water is not what everyone wants to drink. So almost by default, we need beverages that are, uh, are affordable and healthful. And tea is both that. It's very easy to make it yourself the way you would like it. It has the added impact of providing fluoride along with these phytochemicals, uh, the catechins and the theanines, and it is something that is readily available. It's on our it's on our doorsteps. I do counsel against drinking tea with milk because it seems to precipitate some of the valuable products in the tea. And I do encourage people to play around themselves with making their own teas because that's how they'll find the flavors that they enjoy the most. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say about tea. It's a really smart choice in terms of price, calorie control, and delivering other benefits with what we know is no harm except for caffeine, which is not harmful unless you're taking in very high doses. And Probably your listeners are aware of the fact that the amount of caffeine in a cup of tea is a fraction of that which they would be getting in a cup of coffee, maybe a third or a quarter as much. Well, I will refer our listeners to your website at UCLA, and I want to thank you so much for spending time with me. Our time is way too short because you're filled with all kinds of fascinating information. But just for our listeners, just to refresh their memories, we have been speaking with Dr. Lenore Arab. She's a professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Her research interests include anti-carcinogens in food, including coffee and tea components, breast cancer, prostate cancer, also the multimedia approaches to dietary assessment, which unfortunately we didn't get to today, but she's a nutritional epidemiologist. Her website shows all the assorted publications she's published, and uh, I 
we'll provide that link for further research. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And again, Dr. Arab, I want to thank you so much for your time and all the great information you shared. Thank you, Melinda. I look forward to seeing you at the TXO, and I love your motto of thinking beyond the plate. Thank you so much. Thank you.